Personal and organizational belonging. According to a 2021 Harvard Business Review study, 85% of workers believe that their mental health and well-being has declined, and 56% cited a high increase in job demands. The Great Resignation continues, where we have seen more than 4.5 million people leave their jobs in March 2022, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Global conflict and a never-ending pandemic have exacerbated employee burnout. There is a fundamental paradigm shift in the employer and staff dynamic that cannot be overlooked. Today's workers seek purpose and belonging in the workplace and beyond. Belonging is critical to support inclusive and respectful workplaces and communities for all. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ronside Equity Diversity and Inclusion crew, or Ready crew, Amith Prakash. Today, we're speaking with Ricardo Gonzalez, the founder and CEO of Bilingual America, which he founded in 1992. He's the author of multiple books, including his latest, To Belong or Not to Belong, The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, The Six Stages of Cultural Sales, and The Twelve Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. You can learn more about Ricardo and his work at his website at www.ricardogonzalez.com. Welcome. Bienvenidos, Ricardo. Hi, gracias. Thank you, Audra. How are you? Good to talk with you again. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. Yes. Thank you for joining us. We're always excited to have you, and we really appreciate your time. I'm so excited about your new book, To Belong or Not to oh, Belong. Oh, my goodness. As am I. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for writing the forward to the book. I, I have to Aww. say that first off. Thank you so much. That was incredibly meaningful uh, for me personally and hopefully for the readers as well. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it very, very Aww. much. My pleasure, Ricardo. Thank you. Yeah. So, Ricardo, you know, to speak it from my own experience of learning with you in your Six Stages of Cultural Mastery course, I feel this book is really a nice segue to help companies and individuals create a culture of belonging. I'm going to start with, you know, I know I love the way you've done set this up as acts and scenes. So act one, scene one of your book, you describe a conversation you have with a colleague in Costa Rica that really sets in motion this introspective look that you've had about belonging. And he stated, quote, neither of us will be fully accepted anywhere because we really don't belong anywhere. Why were these words so powerful yet so hurtful at the same time? You know, powerful, yes, because it really made me kind of dig deep. It came from a person who, honestly, I felt like we didn't have much in common. But he said to me, we have a lot in common, and that was what we had in common, that neither of us would ever really belong anywhere, be fully accepted anywhere. And those words just kind of struck me. And so as we as we dug deeper into that conversation, he talked about how he had, you know, he's American. He had been raised in Spain. His mother was an ambassador in, in Spain, and then he lived in Germany. And, and he said, you know, you're the same way, you know, you're Puerto Rican, but, you know, you're raised in the States, your mother's American, your father's Puerto Rican. So when you're in the U.S., your last name's Gonzalez. So, you know, you're, you're a minority there. And then in Puerto Rico, you're not, you weren't born in Puerto Rico, which is, you know, I, I wish I had been, right? But I wasn't because that's kind of the litmus test question in Puerto Rico. You know, where were you born? You'd asked it all the time. And it's, it, it's, it's a divisive question in certain ways and intended just to kind of find out, you know, are you a Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican, or are you a Puerto Rican who was born in the States? And, you know, I lived in both countries. Spanish was my first language. And, you know, and now I, I live in the Dominican Republic and the honest truth is I've never felt like I belonged anywhere. And that was the impetus for this book. And, and 
I don't know that his words were hurtful as much as they were. They were just, it was true, right? And sometimes truth hurts. It causes us to dig deeper inside, but at the end of the day, it's liberating. So the book for me has, has been a very liberating experience because I tried to move as much as we appreciate the professional benefits of belonging in our organizations, I, I tried to move it to a very personal uh, approach as well. And so thus the the whole thing with the act one, two, and three, really playing off of, of Shakespeare's, you know, Hamlet, to be or not to be, right? And to belong or not to belong. And what I found in, in research and, and just, you know, observing and and living this out was that for some people it's almost the same question to be or not to be to belong or not to belong and for some people you can actually be in an environment you can be in an organization you can be in a community and you can feel like you're dying and when you feel like that you don't want to belong there and so i think that belonging audra is much deeper than say perhaps the corporate approaches we take to it, it's very personal in nature. And that's what I was really hoping to accomplish with this book, to get leaders to see the personal side of belonging, not just the the statistics, not just the data, which are all incredibly compelling, <laughs> right? But um, so, you know, Bob's words to me were, they were powerful and, and they felt like they hurt, but actually at the end of the day, they were very liberating. It just really made me dig deep. Wow, Ricardo, that is very deep. We're starting out very deep on the Diversity Deep Dive podcast today. I love that. Okay, <laughs> so if you're thinking of this from a personal perspective, I feel as though it's really difficult to figure out where you belong. I think that's one of the things that your book really helps to ask questions, and they're very reflective. I love the questions at the end of each each section that makes the reader reflect on their own personal experiences and their own journey of belonging. So I think that's really exciting. So moving on to my next question then, Ricardo, one of the statements that really jumped off the page in scene three of act one, you state that, quote, true belonging, we own it, we defend it, it's ours. That is so profound. It's simple, but so profound. You know, how does that apply in the workplace as you see organizations and leaders really owning, you know, are they really owning belonging today? Most people, when they think of belonging, they think of, do I feel comfortable here? But that's not really belonging. If something belongs to me and I belong to it, we're willing to sacrifice together. And if need be, defend it together and perhaps even die for it together. That's the deepest sense of belonging. It belongs to me. It's mine. It's ours and we're going to defend it together. I think in that sense, especially as we've now begun to deal with what's called the great resignation, which I I would prefer to call the great realignment, is certainly applicable here. But at the end of the day, for me, if something to belong means to own it. And it really touches on the subject of, of true inclusiveness, Audra, within an organization, Because if there's not true inclusiveness, there's no way to create real belonging because there's no way to create ownership. And so people who are not included meaningfully in decision-making processes, in casting vision together, in creating together, they're never going to feel like they own it. 
And so I think those things all tie together to create this sense of ownership. So, you know, ownership, a lot of people think about ownership, they think financial, but we can also feel ownership as well. It's not just financial. It may be financial to some degree, you know, how do we share things together? But, you know, I think that leaders, you know, to go to the root of your question, leaders have to help others feel like they own part of the initiative. Leaders have to make others feel like they're, they own part of that organization or perhaps the business unit. We own it together. But if we own it together, then we share in it together. We defend it together. We, you know, but we also share the benefits of it together. That's what it means to own something. Ricardo, I really, I love what you just said about no way to create real belonging without true inclusivity, inclusiveness. I like to think that, you know, as we were talking about this topic of belonging, that, you know, it's a journey, it's never a destination, but it's always a continuous journey. Because I think as our circumstances change in our careers and our lives, you know, our sense of belonging changes or where we desire to be. I think that's one of the things that makes this book so exciting and so timely. With the great resignation, the great reimagining, the great reset, we have so many different terms for it. People are really taking time to figure out what's what's critical and important for their lives, where they are today, um, in the midst of COVID, post-COVID, where they want to be tomorrow. And I think that's one of the reasons why this book is so needed today. I think I really encourage all our listeners to get a copy of this book. You can definitely get it from ricardogonzalez.com. If you, for any reason, can't find out where or have any issues or need us to connect you, you please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. We're more than happy to, to get the link to you directly. So, Ricardo, moving on to our next question, when we talk about You've really been on this belonging journey for quite some time. You know, this is not something that just came up this year or because of COVID. You really give examples across the span of your life in this book, you know, all different ages, all different stages of your life. What advice do you want to give someone who really doesn't know where to start discovering what that true sense of belonging means to them at a personal level? Where, where can they start? Like, what's the first step for a person? Yeah, this is going to sound, yeah, I thought about this. You have to lean into the pain. You have to lean into the frustration. You have to be open with yourself and honest with yourself. And you have to be willing, I think, to take that risk. Because if, if you know, for example, Audra, there are a lot of people who are perhaps bicultural, biracial, and bi-ethnic or even people who were perhaps born in another country who at a young age, maybe their parents moved to another country and they are struggling deeply and many times with both identity and identification. Identity is who do I believe I am, right? And identification is who, how do other people see me and how do they identify me? And, of course, we have these conversations all the time in diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations. But as it relates to belonging, it's really about identity and identification. And I think for people to get on this journey, they have to tap into emotion. And and that's one of the things I try to do in the book is to say to people, it's okay to, to feel. Well, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel angry. 
It's okay to feel joy. It's okay to feel frustration. You know, however you want to put different emotions, it's okay. But you have to take that emotion and then create motion, right? And the motion we create is that discovery of who am I, identity, and how do I want other people to see me, which really touches belonging because that's going to touch the groups, the communities, the places where I want to be. And not only where I want to be, but where they want me to be because we want it, it's best when it's mutual, right? And so I think that my advice to people who are just kind of starting out on this journey is, is just to be open, open to yourself, open to your emotions, get in touch with that. And the other thing I would say here is that this can be a deeply profound experience for people. I know for me, even writing the book was very cathartic. And I cried many times in the writing of the book. I laughed. <laughs> you know, there were things that just, they make me laugh. But I think that some people, there were a couple times as I was writing the book that I, I needed to reach out to a couple of very, very close friends who've known me for years and, and they know me intimately and I trust them. As you really, and, and I might suggest this as you read the book, you know, have someone there that you really trust that you maybe work through some of these things. We tried to do this and you alluded to it with the questions at the end of every scene, which we call spotlight on you trying to stay with that whole theater theme, right? But there are some penetrating questions and it may be wise and it may be helpful to have a trusted friend or mentor or even counselor if need be as the person begins to work through these things. You know, these are deep personal matters and to belong or not to belong. That's the question, right? That's the question. And I think we have to address it. Absolutely, Ricardo. I, I totally agree with that. I think that just me personally reading the book and having to sit down, I had to come back to some sections because I felt it struck too close to home. You know, when you're thinking about on a personal level versus the as a diversity expert or expertise or subject matter expert, however you want to describe people who worked in, a, in this field or practitioners, it's really hard to look at it from outside the lens of work. You know, you think about it at, at this deeper level, on this personal level. I love how you broke it out into that personal, social, organizational segments in your book so that we could see a holistic picture of belonging, not just one side of the coin. So very well done. Again, if you have, if you don't have this book, you need to get this book, To Belong or Not Belong, by Ricardo Gonzalez. And with that, I'm going to pass it to my dear colleague, Amit Prakash. Amit? Audra, thank you so much. And uh, Ricardo, it's a pleasure to be a part of this interaction with you today. Ricardo, one of the things which I realized after I picked your book up, other than the form and structure and the thoughts that you have presented in the book, I also realized that you're a brilliant storyteller and there are lots of stories in your book. I'm going to pick on one of these stories that you sort of elaborated and I want to get your thoughts on these. So on page 37 of your book, you recall a story of traveling from Indiana to your ancestral home in Puerto Rico. On that trip, you engaged in a conversation with your grandfather, Don Pablo Gonzalez, during a very heavy rainstorm. And during this time, you told him, mucho agua, which means much water, which he then corrected in your Spanish and said, 
no mucho luvia, which means much rain. So Ricardo, I'd love to hear how did that one moment in time impact your sense of belonging? So Amit, I have to go back to when I was a very young child. My first language was Spanish. And my father was Puerto Rican. This is the truth. And some people who know me, they, they know this story. But my dad was one of 27 children from, from the hills of, of Puerto Rico. Uh, had an eighth grade education. My mother was an orphan from the state of Kentucky. So I had this bicultural mix. And these cultures were very much in conflict. But there was one man in my life who I learned to love, respect, and adore. And that was my grandfather, who you referred to, uh, Don Pablo Gonzalez. And when he was 50, he had a, a religious experience, and he became a, a man who, you know, when I would walk, he would spend the summers with us in Indiana. And we were when we were in Puerto Rico, then I was kind of there by his side, right? But, you know, I would watch him reading wisdom books and talking with me. And he was that one stabilizing factor in my life. You know, my, my parents kind of had their things going on and that's a whole nother story. But my grandfather, Don Pablo, was, was that one person who I had this deep, deep level of respect for. And I went to high school and university in the United States. And I didn't realize it, Amith, but over that time period, I began to lose my Spanish and I began to lose my culture. And I had always been in love with the Puerto Rican culture, the Latin culture. I never truly embraced the Southern U.S. culture. It's something that later on in life I had to learn to embrace it because I was not embracing half of me. But the, the Puerto Rican culture was that, was, that was my love, right? And so we went on this trip down to Puerto Rico. I'm standing on the balcony with my grandfather, and it starts to rain, one of these tropical torrential rains. And I look at my grandfather, and I say, mucha agua. And, and he was like 90 at the time. And he looked at me, and essentially started to correct my Spanish. And he looks at me, and he says, no, Ricardo. Mucha juvia. And he was correcting my Spanish. And it was that one moment in time where I recognized that if I did not make a conscious decision and determination that I would focus my life and my work on making sure that I was connected with the Latino culture and that I was connected to the language. I mean, the whole reason that I own a, my company, Bilingual America, is because of this, right? The whole reason that I do what I do is because of that moment with my grandfather when I had to face myself, that I was losing the very thing to which I most wanted to belong, and that was the Puerto Rican culture. And so I just, from that point on in my life, Everything that I did revolved around making sure that I stayed connected to that. I moved back to Puerto Rico as an adult. I was there for many years. I lived in Costa Rica. I lived uh, several years in the Dominican Republic. It just was a strong personal decision in me. So, Amit, I appreciate the question because that's, that's a very personal story. 
And I think that there are a lot of people, second generation uh, people from other countries living perhaps in the U.S. or other countries, and they're, they're kind of struggling with this. And at some point, you come to a point of decision and you say, this is the culture to which I most really want to belong, and I'm going to do what I need to do to do so. Well, Ricardo, I think that's a very hair-raising experience. As I was listening to you, I could not help but recall that in our lives, we have so many incidents, so many experiences, but then there are some of those experiences, some of those incidents that linger on for the rest of our lives in our own very deep memories. So thank you so much for sharing that very interesting insight. I'm now going to shift my focus, Ricardo, to something which is more contemporary. And I think you just spoke about this a while ago, about identity and identification. And coming back to this topic and subject of identity and identification, in your book, in Act 2, in Scene 2, you discuss this topic of identity and identification. And on page 82 of your book, you state that I've had a deep personal struggle with both identity and identification. You shared that your struggles are related to your bicultural heritage, which you just spoke to us about. But if you come to think of it, there is another group, Ricardo, that often struggles with identity, and that is the LGBTQ community. Coincidentally, as we are having this conversation today, June is also regarded as the LGBTQ Pride Month. And a lot of people around the world struggle with how they want to be identified and how they want to be defined by others. So on this particular theme, I just would like to pick on your thoughts as to what advice do you have for organizations to ensure that workers have a voice in the decisions that impact culture? Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's multifaceted, right? The first thing that I would encourage people to do, and something that I do, I focus more on what I can control. And the thing I can control is my own sense of identity. I can't always control how other people identify me. I'll give you an example. I, I live in the Dominican Republic. And here I'm a foreigner. Even though I'm Puerto Rican, I speak perfect Spanish, all of those good things, right? But there are times. I, I was walking not too long ago, and uh, I was walking past a school, and there were some kids playing on the playground, and they they saw me, and and I don't look Dominican, <laughs> right? And so they saw me, and one kid loudly, and so I could hear it, says to another kid. Hey, and he said it in a vulgar way, which I won't repeat because it's kind of a denigrating term. He says, hey, there's a foreigner. Let's go take his money, right? And so I can't control how they identify me, no matter if I was raised out in the, the hills of Puerto Rico or you know my Spanish. Does, I can't always control how other people identify me. I can control how I respond to them. I can control if I choose to educate them or if I choose to call them out. I personally choose to educate people, to help people to understand who I am, right? Or who a group of people are. So I think that, uh, you know, for example, in the LGBTQ plus community, there are 
individual decisions that people make that define their own sense of identity. And that is the right of every human being. And not only the right of every human being, it is the responsibility of every human being to be who they are, right? How other people identify us is how do we respond to that identification? Do I fight them? Do I try to call them out? Do I try to shame them? Do I try to educate them? Those are decisions that we all have to make. And in organizations, it becomes even more complex because within organizations, Amit, you have both a macro culture and you have multiple subcultures that exist within an organization. So this, again, comes back to inclusiveness. To some degree, it comes back to the six stages of cultural mastery, which Audra mentioned at the beginning here. And that is this. Stage four is excitement. If I'm not excited about people, if I'm not excited about who they are, their talents, their gifts, their abilities, everything they bring to the table, I will never intuitively or naturally want to give them a seat at the table. So stage four excitement is, is to me, it's a cornerstone stage of inclusiveness. No leader is truly inclusive unless they're excited about the people they're leading. That would then take me to stage five, which is, which is empowerment, which takes us to the whole areas of social justice, takes us to the areas of equity, right? And so a naturally, an empowering leader will be naturally equitable. But I think sometimes we're trying to get leaders to do things rather than to be someone. And so my advice for organizations to ensure that workers have a voice in the decisions that impact the culture is first and foremost, get the horse before the cart. And that means make sure the leadership is culturally healthy and skilled. That's the real key because they're the ones who are able to create that table. That's, that's my advice there. That's absolutely brilliant, Ricardo. And uh, I strongly resonate with what you just said about excitement. Diversity, equity, and inclusion has to create excitement uh, for both leaders and for employees, because that's how I personally feel we can create a sense of belongingness. And I very, very strongly resonate with what you've just said. And interestingly, Ricardo, as I have this conversation with you, and the leaders that I've been working with. I also wanted to share that here in the APAC region from where I come from, we recently completed a workshop on inclusive leadership. And this ties to something that we have been talking about. On page 91 of your book, there was something which was very, very touching, which I came across. And on that particular page, you state that sometimes our lack of desire to be someplace has nothing to do with the place, but everything to do with where we come from. I think you've been speaking about this statement in varied manners, but I'd just like to take a moment to ask you this question. As to what pointers do you have for organizations that bring multiple country leaders together with a common goal of inclusivity and belonging? Ricardo? So... This is a wonderful, this is a wonderful conversation. And I want to repeat what you said, because I think it, it just to give context to where I'm going to go with this, that sometimes our lack of desire 
to be someplace has nothing to do with that place, but everything to do with where we came from. Okay? So everyone has past experiences that create emotion and create for them a sense of trust or non-trust or whatever. Okay? So when people of multiple cultures and countries come together, and I think it's better to think in terms of myth of cultures because even uh, you and I were talking a little bit before we began the conversation here uh, live, you know, even in India, you know, your home country, it's an incredibly diverse country, right? And so I think that the first thing I would say here is there has to be a greater focus on the macro culture. For many years, I've done an exercise with C-suite and high-level leaders of organizations. And the exercise is this. Take a blank piece of paper, separate yourself from anyone else around you, because this is an individual assignment. And I want you to define your company's culture or your organization's culture. And so you may have a COO, a CTO, a uh, CDO, you may have a chief equity officer, uh, you may have the CEO, CEO there and the CSO and, you know, the different, the C-suite, right? There's certainly the CFO. And I asked them, define your company culture. So let's say there are 12 people in that C-suite. Of course, the CHRO is there. How many different answers do you think I get? And these are the people leading the organization. And I've done this for years, and I can tell you that to date, I've never gotten 12 people in the C-suite to give the same exact definition of their culture. So they're not even completely clear on what the macro culture actually is. Okay? So culture is that composite of beliefs and values, norms, language, and symbols. And if we can't properly define our macro culture, there is nothing for people of multiple cultures to grab onto in the macro. And so what happens is we have a lot of subcultures then, some stronger than others, some more vocal than others, some, you get the picture? So the advice that I would give as it relates to inclusive leadership is, first of all, make sure that you have a very clear macro culture. And in the book, I talk about the creation of a culture statement. And I'm really trying to address this particular point. We can't expect people from multiple cultures to come together if we don't give them that macro culture on which we can all align. And thus we have, you know, many subcultures created within a large organization. And then we're just kind of all vying for some attention. And so I think that that's my, my, my advice here is we have to focus on more than we do on the macro culture. It's so true, Ricardo. Two things that come to my mind when you talk about culture is culture is created by people within the organization. And it's very essential that we get this understanding right from the very beginning. Having said that, I think this conversation that we have been having um, is very, very enriching for a person like me who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. But this conversation is just the tip of the iceberg. To all the listeners who are listening to this podcast, it's highly recommended that you take a copy of this book to belong or not to belong because there's a lot more 
things uh, that can be unraveled once you start reading this book. On that note, let me take a pause over here once again and uh, hand it back to my counterpart, Audra. Audra, over to you, please. Wow, thanks, Amit. What a great dialogue there. I love that interaction, Ricardo. It's been such a gift. I really appreciate your time. So, Ricardo, as we continue on these questions, one of the things I, I found in the book for me was the comfort level we feel personally and professionally. As a parent, I was deeply moved by Act 2, Scene 9, entitled A Lonely Generation, where your daughter Mari asked you, where do you really want to be? That really jumped off the page for me. I'm a busy working parent. I'm a leader. Uh, a side effect of the Great Resignation is that work is being absorbed when someone leaves, and many people are burned out, and they are deeply concerned about their psychological safety as a result. How could employers prioritize mental health and well-being in this new hybrid world of work? We have to be very intentional with this. The statistics right now on loneliness and detachment are just, they're staggering. And to give context to the comment that my daughter made to me, uh, we were at dinner and I was on my phone, of course, texting and back and forth with different people answering emails. And my daughter looks at me and she, at the time she was nine, you know, that, that there's a saying that says out of the mouth of babes, you know, and she was nine and she looks at me and she says, daddy, you're not here and you're not there. Where do you really want to be? Audra, it floored me. It absolutely changed me. And I turned my phone off and I said, I want to be here. And I've gotten so much better at it. I think we have to recognize that in the day we're living in, people are incredibly distracted and they're, they're pulled all over the place by digital technologies. And, you know, things like TikTok and Instagram, you know, these short little reels, they're just designed to just grab us, grab us, grab us, grab us, right? And, and so we have to be incredibly intentional as individuals to maintain our mental health in these days. There's a wisdom verse that says a house divided against itself cannot stand. I think we're, we're very divided mentally. We're pulled in so many different directions. We're sitting with people, but we're not actually there. We're talking with other people. And I think if we're honest with each other, it, we, it's a, become quite addictive. And, you know, you can feel this. You can actually physically feel this when you're sitting there and you're having a dinner or something with someone or you're in a conversation. And you just get that urge that I have to be on my, on my smartphone that maybe is just making me dumb. Right. So first of all, I think individually, we have to be incredibly intentional from an employer standpoint. We have to recognize, especially as we move to this hybrid virtual world. Right. Uh, my company has been virtual since 2004. So we were well uh, in front of this curve and we had to learn a lot of tough lessons then that, you know, now are kind of commonplace. But the first thing I would say is that connection, because this is really about connection. Okay. Connection is soul deep. It's not skin deep. Connection does not require physical presence. It does require true connection. So I would encourage leaders to have a deeper understanding of what it takes to get connection from a human standpoint. That's, that's where I would start with leaders, right? Because the, the mental health uh, challenges that we're facing a lot of it is coming out of the loneliness. A lot of it is coming out of the distraction. A lot of it is coming out of 
really kind of the distortion of our relationships. So we have to find connection. Belonging is all about connection. If I don't feel connected, I don't want to be there. And so it's a multifaceted answer, I think, Audra, and and certainly one that's very serious. You read the book, so you know I'm very sensitive to the issues of mental health. For the listeners, my mother, when I was nine, attempted suicide, and I walked in on her after school one day. So I'm very, very sensitive to these needs. Um, And I think all of us, if, if someone who's listening is struggling May I suggest to you a couple things? Number one, uh, you are deeply loved uh, by some people, and there are people who don't know you who would love you, but you have to connect. And 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 the other thing is, you, if you need to get help to speak with someone, you know, reach out. And you know, I I know I'm available. I know other people on this call would make themselves available. If if you really just need a conversation with somebody, someone who cares about you just reach out to some of us, you know, we're here, right? And there are always people who are there. I think that's one of the greatest disappointments in this is that people feel like they're isolated. They don't feel like they belong. And that is the, you know, and I say this in the book, the the greatest statement of I don't want to belong is I don't want to belong on earth. And so I take my life. That's the greatest statement of not wanting to belong somewhere the very place that we've been put to have purpose and and to have a place in the world. So I think, it, Aldra, it, it's something that I'm, I'm incredibly sensitive to and something that I think that every leader needs to learn how to create human connection. Wow, Ricardo, that is so profound. I could not agree with you more. I just keep thinking to myself, you know, what more can we do from a DEI lens uh, around this topic? Because I'll be honest, Ricardo, before COVID-19, most employers wouldn't even say the word psychological safety, mental health and well-being. A lot of employers, it was just a, a nice to have and not a necessity. I think it's a critical need now more than ever. And I think that's your book strikes a strong chord with that. And I think through, yes, I did read that uh, in your book about your mother. And, you know, I was deeply moved by that scene. I just think through from a child's lens, what, what at that time would you think? What were you thinking as a child? Would that have been something of, could your mind, at that age, could you even wrap your mind around what was happening? Could you understand, like, this is a person who gave you life. Can you imagine the person giving you life, taking their own life? I mean, that just seems so mind-blowing to me. And, and I was like, wow. And that kudos to you for having the courage and, and to, to put that out there in the book and the universe and, and something so personal and deeply, uh, I don't want to know, affecting. I don't want to say traumatizing, but at least affecting uh, of a small child. It's traumatizing. You know, you're a nine-year-old, you walk in and your mother's eyes are rolled up into her head, you know, and you have to call 911 and you don't know what to do. You know, nobody prepared you for that. I, I would like to say something along these lines, and that is this. What makes one person feel like they belong may actually repel another person. So one of the dangers with organizational or corporate policies that are across the board 
is that we meet the needs of some people, but not all people. Because belonging is so deeply personal, right? And, you know, I talk a lot about cultural relevance in some of my other books. But, you know, I I think as a leader, we have to be much more uh, personal and we must more high context. We have to value these relationships much more highly than perhaps in the past we did in business. It's the culture we're living in that needs this. People are searching and deeply needing this connection. So I think in the future, highly effective leaders are not only going to have to have business acumen and you know general leadership skill, they're going to have to have this ability to connect business and humanity. And there has to be this connection of people. And the most skilled leaders in the future, I think, are going to have that skill, the ability to deeply connect people who perhaps are different, different cultures, but they're going to have that ability. They're going to be peacemakers. Wow, Ricardo, I, I totally agree with that. I one of the things we we did a we did a campaign last year. Well, maybe when initially when on COVID on started, I think beginning, I guess mid. 2020 and 2021, when you celebrate diversity and inclusion, you celebrate humanity. And it's really getting to the human nature of of existence. And I think we lose that. We lose, we have the commercialization, we have, you know, so many things and so many uh, recommendations of what good leadership looks like. And never, never have I seen it where it's talking about getting to our humanity part and leaning into empathy and leaning into more than I've seen it during COVID. I mean, prior to that, it was, it was never something you would have seen on any type of executive leadership training or coaching or, or guidance. Uh, But it is such a critical skill, you know, pre COVID and and beyond. So thank you for calling it out. So Ricardo um, in act three, just pivoting a little bit, you do, you dive deeper into organizational belonging Uh, on page 170. You talk about, this onboarding process with a client and you actually want to go through this process just to set the scene. And one of the steps in the process of understanding what's going on there, you interview a former employee and you ask her at what point did she feel like she didn't belong? And she stated, and I quote, oh, on the first day I started having concerns, but within the first week I knew it was just a matter of time. This sent a couple of clear messages. One, onboarding is clearly not a priority at this organization. Two, they fail to really wow the employee during the honeymoon phase of the employment. So if you're not wowing someone in the honeymoon phase, then what's going to happen, you know, second year, third year, fourth year? That's not giving a person a sense of comfort or sense of understanding that they're going to be able to thrive there. How did you advise this client to make onboarding more inclusive while providing a sense that someone would want to work there long term? I just asked this question, you know, you you know, if you take your family to a theme park or something, you know, at the end of the day, you go, wow, that was just amazing. You know, that was fun. That ride was amazing, you know, whatever. And so there's a question I think leaders need to ask themselves about their onboarding process. And that is, do people go home that first night after work and they talk to their family or they talk to their friends or whoever they're, they're, they're conversing with and they go, oh my God, that was the most amazing day of my life. I am blown away. This is this is beyond anything that I could have ever expected. That's what I think that onboarding experience, especially that first day, has to be. You know, they say the first impression makes the greatest, right? It's the, it's, it's the greatest impression. And it's true. 
And so if, if we have an onboarding process that is boring, is not motivating, it's not inspirational, it's not setting people up to have this sense of, I want to be here the rest of my life type feeling, then I think we have work to do on our onboarding. And so, you know, we all know what it means to feel great. That's, that's the experience. So onboarding, rather than looking at it, we have to look at it as an experience. And I know different organizations are going to view this differently. But the more I can make that a very special day, I'll give you an example. I, I think I use this example in the book. I went out to do some consulting for a company out in California, and they were, they were hiring a, a good number of Hispanics who, for the most part, were Mexican. And you had to read the book to get the full story. But one of the things we did there was we said to them, you know, and, and don't just offer uh, Coca-Cola and Sprite here. You know, why don't you offer jarritos so that when they come in, they want to drink, they drink jarritos because that's, that's you know, that's what a lot of the Mexicans drink, which is the Mexican soda, right? I mean, it's a simple thing. It's a simple thing, but it's a simple thing that's culturally relevant that means something. And it also says something. It says to the people coming in, these people care about me. These people care about my culture. And that's a place where I want to belong. So there are a lot of tangible, simple, kind of intuitive things that we can do if we're really kind of in tune with this stuff that really doesn't cost more money, doesn't take more time. It just takes some creativity. It takes some care. And, you know, there are a lot of examples I could give of these things, but that that should hopefully create a sense of, okay, okay, get your thinking going, right? Get your thinking going on the onboarding process. Absolutely. And I think especially in this tight labor market we are in, Ricardo, where people have choices. I tell people all the time, you know, it's so funny you had that example. I in my previous role, before I was Chief, uh, Chief Diversity Inclusion Officer in North America, uh, as you know, I worked in one of our operating companies, and my leader at the time would bring in these large companies, and we're asking for these multimillion-dollar contracts. And I said, I said, wow, where are we? what are we serving? And they would say, oh, you know, sandwiches. And I said, would you invite the President of the United States to your house and offer them a cold deli sandwich? And so they thought I was just being extra, you know, by saying, I said, if you invite someone in, make them feel like they're at home, make them feel like they, that they, they were welcome. You're rolling out the red carpet. You're making them feel special. Like you feel like you are so excited they're there. And he started joking around and started calling me the hot lunch director. She's the director of hot lunch because she keeps promoting hot lunch. And so I, (laughs) but I said to myself, (laughs) so I said to them, I said, so if I invited you to my house for a meal, how would you feel if I served you a cold sandwich and some chips that you could have got picked up at a gas station on your way here? Would you not be offended by that? Or something that I actually cooked or catered that was a hot, thoughtful meal, maybe your favorite dishes. And I I was, people, I don't know. I said, if you're asking if I was a buyer in that situation, Ricardo, and you're wanting me to sign over millions of dollars, and you, I've traveled on a plane to your organization, and you serve me a cold sandwich, I'm going to think that's in, that you, why you didn't think very much of me, <laughs> one, uh, and two, okay. I'm going to think that this was not very thoughtful. It's one thing to have a cold sandwich and a hot cup of soup on the side, a bowl of soup, that or something warm and fuzzy <laughs> about the moment. I just. 
I don't know. I know this is my tangent, but my team knows when we have meetings, team meetings, that they joke around. They're like, oh, we don't want to get fired. We better make sure there's a hot lunch for Audra when she gets in town. So I was like, I'm not going to fire anybody, but I just think it's, you're not expecting, you're not welcoming and bringing someone in <laughs> with a cold sandwich. It just says, hey, here's some food uh, here. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Audra, there's the title for your next, your first, our next book. I'm not sure which one it would be, but that's a great title, Hot Lunches. How to create, yeah. I don't know, I have to mention the subtitle, but I think that's a good title, Hot Lunches. That's a good title for a book, Audrey. <laughs> so, I, I may have to write you know, that one. Look, I think you could do really well with it. I'd be happy to write the forward. How's that? <laughs> so I would love you know, to have you, Ricardo. People have to, look, people have to look at new associates as, as business partners. They are, in fact, making money for the business. That's why they're being hired, right? So we should be wooing and wowing people. Most people right now are, a lot of large organizations are throwing around bonuses to get people to sign. But maybe there's some other things that we could be doing that would actually be more meaningful, that would make people feel like they belong more or want to belong than just money. Hot lunches. I love it. I love that. That is it. All right, Ricardo, I know we're running out of time here. So let me get to my next question. When we talk about belonging, it's also being free to be free to be me in all the spaces I occupy. That's what I think about when I felt like I belong. I could be myself. I also think there's a trust factor. In your book, you, you discussed the job description and how a scene where you were starting a new job and you had the job description and you were given the real, quote unquote, real job description when you're on your first day, what is the biggest lesson you learned in that moment? I learned that when people are brought into an organization with a certain set of expectations and those expectations are not realized, it makes you want to leave. In other words, it makes you not want to belong. You talked about in the previous question, you talked about the lady who kind of checked out. She knew the first day that there were concerns and within a week she knew she was leaving. As soon as that uh, particular leader gave me my quote under unquote real job description after the interview and after the hiring, but then when I actually got there and I got the quote real job description, which was different from what my expectations and understandings were, I think a lot of time I, I wanted to check out and I lasted six months there, by the way, because the first day I was already checking out and it's not fair to people. To bring people in under a certain set of expectations and then all of a sudden start asking them to do or to, to do other things or to be something else. We have to be consistent. And that that goes back to your the, the area of trust. If people cannot believe me, they can't trust me. And so I think that that's the lesson that I learned. You know, we can't bait and switch people. We people get confused. And when people get confused, people want out. That's very true, Ricardo. I could not agree with you more on that. I, th I feel as though it's one of those, I hate it's the term, but it's the bait and switch. You know, we, we, we bring, bait you in with a dream of this, this dream job and then switch. You know, this is, sorry, this is really what you're going to be doing. So it doesn't foster a sense of trust. You feel as though you've been misled, you know, in, the, in, that, pro in that moment, in my mindset. That's what I would be thinking. So one last question, Ricardo, of all the personal experiences you shared in your book, and you did share so many wonderful stories, and I agree with the myth said earlier, you're a phenomenal storyteller. 
what are the which outcomes are the are you most proud of out of those experiences? Yeah, I shared a lot of personal stories. They're not all my stories, but because because they're personal and I couldn't ask other people to to expose themselves perhaps in that way. There's a story at the beginning of the book called Mark and Maggie and the the names are changed. And when I was in high school, these they came from two different schools to our school. And very frankly, Audra, we made their lives a living hell. We made fun of them. We ridiculed them because they were different. And we didn't, very frankly, we did not, you know, I was 16, right? Just stupid. Not all 16-year-olds are stupid, by the way. I just was. And so were my friends. And so we just made their lives miserable at their new school. And rather than helping them feel like they belonged, we made it very clear we didn't want them to belong. And the thing that I don't know if I'd use the word proud of, but the thing that I'm, I feel the best about is I'm no longer that person. If I could, I, and I've tried, I've actually literally tried to find these two people, one male, one female, can't find them, don't, don't know where they're at. But I think that of, of all the things, I think it's just the thing that we can control is ourselves. And the thing that I feel best about is that that person I was at 16 who, and by the way, and I, you know, I know it's a deep subject, the whole subject of bullying, and that's certainly a form of bullying. We never hit them and things like that, but we certainly made their lives miserable and we made fun of them. So that's, to me, that's a form of bullying. If anyone has ever bullied other people or made, tried to make other people feel bad or miserable or for whatever reason, you know, the good news is we can change. You know, that was years and years ago. I think if there's one thing that I feel best about as I wrote the book and as I had to do a lot of personal inventory to make sure that I would be even qualified to write such a thing, it's just the growth that I've had in my own life. And I feel really good about that. That's amazing, Ricardo. And we're thankful for you and all the wonderful knowledge, your insights you're sharing, because you're making a difference in everybody's lives with your books and your teachings and your courses. And I, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, you really brought some great one, insights today. Ricardo Gonzalez, phenomenal, world-class speaker, world-class teacher. If you haven't gotten the book, get it, belong or not to belong. Thank you, Amit Prakash from my Ready Crew for another fantastical conversation. Also want to give a big shout out to our listeners globally. We really appreciate your support. In the words of Voltaire, appreciation is a wonderful thing. It makes what is excellent in others belong to us as well. Remember that when we celebrate diversity, inclusion, and belonging, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word with our hashtag diversity deep dive podcast. Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged, working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in the world, workplace, and community. Thank you.